Welcome to Lung Cancer Concert, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and islc.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Narjus Duma. Welcome to Lung Cancer Concert. I'm your host, Dr. Narjus Duma, and a thoracic medical oncologist at the University of Wisconsin. Today, I'm honored to have Dr. Fumiko Chino. We also discuss a relevant challenge to thoracic oncology, which is financial toxicity associated with cancer care. Dr. Chino is an assistant attendant in a radiation oncologist at Memorial Sloan Catherine Cancer Center in New York City. It is important to mention that financial challenges will vary on geographic location, patient individual characteristics. I know Dr. Chino for a while, so I'm going to be referring to her as Fumiko, and she will be referring to me by my first name. Fumiko, thanks for joining us today to discuss this very important aspect of thoracic oncology. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. I'm just overjoyed to uh, join you on this podcast and really talk about a topic that I'm quite passionate about, both in research and also with my patients. And unfortunately, you know, with my own life, financial toxicity has really been interwoven into how I ended up in medicine at all. And linked to that comment is my first question. So you have a very interesting story of how you ended in cancer care, you know, from your family history and your your mom's, as well as your own life experiences. Can you share with us how was that journey of becoming a radiation oncologist? Yeah, I'm happy to. I think that I have built uh, my career off of some really good female role models. So uh, my mother is a radiation oncologist and actually so is one of my older sister's so I had really great, strong role models in, you know, medical careers, and then specifically within radiation oncology, which is, as you may know, a male-dominated specialty. But, you know, even with all of this, I honestly was never thinking of being in medicine. I actually have a background in art. My, I have a fine arts degree as an undergraduate. And it was really only when my fiancé and then husband became sick with cancer um, that I realized that kind of we were going to have a fundamental shift in our future and then specifically for me in my career. So, you know, this idea of young people getting sick with cancer obviously is a tragedy that we see in our clinics um, every day. But, you know, when it happens to you, it really does cause again, sort of a diametric shift in your future. Um, And so, you know, the travails that we had um, struggling through the healthcare system and then specifically with cost are really what brought me to, you know, go to medical school and to do the research that I do in financial toxicity. And ultimately, you know, the reason why I'm here at MSK uh, focused on this work. Thank you for sharing that with us, Fumiko. I have learned from your story since I met you when we were trainees and, you know, the whole graphic story that was shared, I think we invite everyone to visit that. And can you just explain to the people that are listening about this, the graphic story that was two years ago, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. so roughly two years ago in the LA Times, I worked with a specialist who does um, narrative medicine, graphic medicine, um, uh, named Nathan Gray, and he illustrated my story and my husband's story, struggle 
with financial toxicity and cancer care. Um, so, you know, the starting from basically diagnosis through treatment and ultimately, unfortunately, through his death about how costs really had a negative impact on, you know, the path to diagnosis, treatment, um, and recovery for me, because, you know, I was left with these huge debts um, after my husband, Andrew, died. And so outside of just the crushing, you know, emotional burden of being a new widow, and, you know, I was a widow before I was the age of 30, um, just having to think like, oh my goodness, like how do I even, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, debt collectors calling my phone, how do I even kind of reinvent my life to get it right back on a right path? Thank you for sharing that with us. You know, 2020 was a very long year. So I wasn't sure if it was two years ago or 10 years ago when <laughs> I saw the publication, uh, cause 2020 feels like it was so long. Yeah, it's a decade of years. I actually said that. It's funny you should say that. With Andrew being sick, I said, you know, it's like a, a year of cancer treatment is like a dog year. And so, you know, we were only married for, you know, less than two years, but I felt like we were a decade together in marriage because we struggled through so much. And so COVID years, I feel like, is a perfect corollary for that um, for everyone. I like that. Dog years. I I, I certainly... I noticed that I had a few more gray hairs a few days ago and I just, it's all 2020. I'm, I'm going on that. <laughs> my hair dyeing has, uh, my self hair dyeing to cover up the gray. It's, uh, it's really, it's taken off. <laughs> well, thank you for, for sharing these experiences that, you know, guide you to study financial toxicity with cancer care. So as we move and we learn about the subject, what are some of the biggest barriers for patients while receiving cancer care from the financial aspect? Yeah, I think that it's so complex. And I think the first um, barrier is just insurance, health insurance itself. So who has health insurance, who, how they have the health insurance, and then the quality of the health insurance. So, you know, again, coming back to my own personal story, you know, my husband had private health insurance through his um, school. And what we found out is that he was, you know, tragically underinsured. And so underinsurance is a huge problem for people with cancer because they, they will find, you know, when they were healthy, that their health insurance was fine because they really didn't need it for much. But cancer is expensive. You know, just getting a diagnosis of cancer requires, so for lung cancer, you know, you have a chest x-ray and then you have a CT scan and then you have a biopsy, you have a bronchoscopy, you have, you know, a PET scan, you have, might have an MRI of your brain. You know, just getting the diagnosis of your proper disease and your um, stage um, is a series of appointments and costly scans um, that really, you know, put a big burden on someone's um, finances. And if your health insurance is, you know, poor or low quality, you're going to have um, some, you know, pretty extensive out-of-pocket costs related to that. So health insurance is a huge issue, but then I think we can never, you know, ignore just the larger social determinants of health, which is, well, how did you get that health insurance? You know, what kind of job do you have? Is it an hourly job? Because for them, you know, for people who aren't, you know, where their income is tied to the number of hours that they work and they may or may not have sick leave, just the loss of income of, for example, having to go to appointments, that's a huge burden. So it's not just costs going out the door, but it's also lack of money coming in. And so those burdens 
can be, you know, insurmountable for some families. And it really is um, a potential obstacle to not just getting um, the right diagnosis, but also getting the right treatment. You know, it, it, it truly is uh, multifactorial and really the benefit of that really the potential only benefit is that there are many ways you could potentially, you know, intervene um, to think about, well, how do we improve insurance? How do we improve access? How do we eliminate these barriers to high quality cancer care? And I think when you mentioned the social determinants of health is extremely important because there are certain groups in which they have to fight more barriers than other groups. I think for Minority groups, the hourly pay is common, the underinsured or no insurance is common. You know, for the Hispanics, they're one of the groups with the highest unsure rates. So there's a lot of barriers that are only financial for these patients, you know, to get cancer care. How are they going to get to the cancer center? Are they able to understand their doctors because they don't speak English, for, a, for example? And I, I strongly use the same phrase, which is you can have a PDO one or hundred percent, but if you cannot make it to the cancer center, your response rate is going to be zero percent. Yeah, I, I love that. I actually use the same. Uh, <laughs> it's so funny. I use the same analogy about like we have these incredibly advanced technologies for radiation now. You know, I can give an ablative dose of radiation, highly conformal, you know, in incredible, durable local control. But if the patient can't get to their daily radiation treatment, then it doesn't matter. It's not you have a failed treatment plan for that person. And so I think correctly, you have said, you know what, like, let's evaluate all of the barriers to think about how language or communication or, you know, obstacles like, you know, parking can really um, inhibit someone's ability to get the high quality care that they, you know, need to move on with their life. Um, One thing that I've noticed is just that there's this... um, you know, family burden related to cancer care. And so when we think about these costs and these financial sacrifices that some, you know, patients are making, it's not just them, it's their whole family. It's their family unit. You can have generational poverty related to a lung cancer diagnosis, for example. You know, you can have compromised education standard for kids. You can have people who've become homeless, their whole family have become homeless related to a cancer diagnosis. And that's what, you know, not all, unfortunately, you know, it's, we're not all, you know, it's not all equal in terms of care delivery. We have incredible inequalities. And just thinking about those kind of collectively, even just being aware of it, I feel like is the first step towards addressing them um, and thinking about, okay, what are the solutions to, to get people the care they need? And I think now that you mentioned parking, um, I would love to hear, because you have this start, this study that had, I remember when I was looking at the study in JAMA Oncology, over a thousand comments in a matter of days. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about this study about financial toxicity associated with parking at the hospitals? Uh, absolutely. I, again, this, you know, a lot of the research that I do is really rooted in my own personal experience because, you know, these things happen to me and my husband. And so I remember specifically paying over $15 to park, you know, for my husband's cancer treatment. And it just seemed like 
we were nickel and dimed at our most vulnerable time. And so what I, you know, honestly just did the simplest study that you can do, which is assess how much people are paying for their parking. Um, and what we found uh, was that it was incredibly variable. I mean, we had, you know, up to $40 a day for some parking and $0 for other people. So the extent of variability was, you know, people could pay over $1,000 for a definitive treatment course. And that, it honestly, it's just not fair. You know, I am a radiation oncologist. It's a daily treatment. As you know, for lung cancer, someone could be on treatment for six weeks. And a third of NCI cancer centers were actually charging people for their radiation treatment for parking. Um, it's, um, it is infuriating, I think is the word I'm looking for. And, and, you know, like you said, it did, it created a lot of conversation online because I think patients really understood why something simple like parking could make a big difference for them. I had a couple of people even online say, you know what, it's the reason why I didn't participate in a clinical trial because they, you know, their parking costs money, the clinical trial required extra visits. And it was one of the main reasons why I, I just couldn't do it. Um, so parking is, um, you know, again, it's a nickel and dime type thing, but it's, it's a profound obstacle for people who are already kind of at the end of the rope. And I found that it's really interesting because I have been at different institutions and the parking situation is different. And sometimes I notice that patients may not be aware of the parking validation either. Yes. So I, I make sure I told all my patients after your studies, like, Hey, we validate parking. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one thing that was really encouraging that came out of, you know, honestly, it was just a simple research letter in JAMA Oncology, but I had a couple of people contact me and say, you know what, I am going to use this to argue for more free parking at my institution and specifically more parking for people on treatment with radiation or for people with chemotherapy, you know, and I, I feel like that is the, you know, that's proof in the pudding when you do a research study and then you have people say, you know, I'm going to use this to try to help people. Like that's, that's why I'm in this is to, to really think about, Oh, how do we change this dynamic? You know, one thing that was for, for example, Texas medical center, I I had read that one of their main incomes is parking for the entire Texas medical center. They, they make a lot of money from parking. And I, and I just think, you know what, that's, I, (laughs) let's, let's just make less money from patients and actually, you know, you know, actually guarantee that they can actually get their care. And, and, you know, I think when we keep talking about financial toxicity, there are other things that, you know, as physicians, we don't think about. And I often think about because I ask this as my patients now, but, you know, we talk about co-pays, but like meals. Now with COVID, many hospitals have the restaurant close to patients. But before that, like I talked to my patients, like, well, having a meal here is more expensive at home. And my previous institution, the cafeteria was quite expensive. So it's like, hey, if I want to have a meal with my wife, when I'm waiting for to see you between scans, like I guess scans in the morning, then lunch, and then I see you, that's around $20. Yeah. And I was like, true. It's, it's phenomenal. The additional differential price that we're essentially charging our patients. And um, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the studies that we did that was um, a poster at ASCO last year was actually specifically asking patients what they felt would actually be helpful for them to actually help ease their financial burden. And actually 
having food available to them around appointments was something that about a third of patients endorsed would actually help them. So something simple, you know, having, you know, even a snack, you know, it, it, it seems so silly, you know, the, the barrier is very low, you know, things like validating parking or, you know, having like, you know, peanut butter crackers available for your patients can go, you know, a world of good. You know, one of the things that, um, has been kind of taking off here at MSK in our affiliated clinics is actually embedding uh, food banks into clinics so that people who have food insecurity um, can actually pick up um, healthy, nutritious food while getting their cancer care. And that's been, you know, again, a simple thing, mechanics of it, you know, somewhat logistically, you know, you need a commitment from the institution to, to, to make it happen. Um, but it's a simple thing of just, Hey, you know, let's feed our patients, you know, if they have food insecurity, let's make that one less barrier for them. And I think the most important thing that we can ask, you know, the people that are listening to us or anyone is to ask our patients because it's often a, you know, a subject that, in my culture, for example, you don't talk a lot about money. Uh, it, it feels like there's a big barrier about talking about money with your doctor, or talking about, about money with your family members. So I think if the doctor initiates the conversation, it can come a long way. And I often ask, it's like, how are things at home? How are the co-pays? And sometimes I learn, uh, Fumiko, that my patients are paying these extremely high co-pays. And they thought that was the, their dues for having a targeted therapy that was, you know, treating the lung cancer. It was like, well, I get to be an appeal. I need to pay $1,500 a month. And like, there's many things that we can do to help that. But if I wouldn't have asked, I wouldn't know. And months and months we happen from that. 100%. I think that, you know, in terms of practical tips to take away, just asking is so important. I think, you know, so there's this in, in, I treat gynecological cancers. And so, you know, the one, one of the things is that, you know, you may, you, you may not think that you've seen someone who has sexual dysfunction after cancer treatment, um, but they've seen you, which is if you don't ask, they may not tell you, and then you will never know and someone will be suffering in silence. And so, you know, costs are very similar to that. Patients feel very reticent or at least based on the data that we have, patients are reticent to talk about this without given, being given permission. And again, I know this from my own personal experience. We were suffering excruciating out-of-pocket costs and did not feel like it was an appropriate topic to bring up with Andrew's oncologist. And so it was the it was a complete misconnection in terms of, you know, thinking, okay, maybe there could have been a resource that we could have, you know, tapped into, but we just didn't. We didn't feel like it was appropriate to ask about alternative medications or things that might be cheaper. And, you know, it's a real missed opportunity to help more people and to actually decrease the burden on our patients. And ultimately, that's what we want, right? We want the, you know, the best care for the patient in front of us. Um, so 100% just asking is a, is a huge step forward in terms of assessing um, and treating financial toxicity, because you'd be surprised about how much you can do by just referring a patient to the right person in terms of financial services. So it requires, you know, a little bit of homework on your part. I think, you know, one thing that it would be very helpful is if you knew, 
okay, who in my facility is the person that can help with copay assistant? Who in my facility is the person that can help with parking vouchers? Um, so you need to do a little bit of homework, but you know, I think it's well worth the investment of your time. And I think it's important and it, it can take a few seconds. And I think it is unfair not to talk about the challenges of 2020. You know, many families and patients lost their insurance coverage and their jobs. What have you seen since the beginning of the pandemic that has increased potentially the financial toxicity associated with cancer care? I've seen so much later diagnoses, more advanced stages. And as you know, you know, with a more advanced stage, you just require more treatment. It's more intense, it's longer, and it causes more side effects. That itself is a larger burden. So we know that, you know, the more intense your treatment, the more time you have away from work, the, the more financially challenging it is for you and your family. And so just, for example, the coverage gap that, that comes with, you know, losing your job and therefore your health insurance. Even if you transition to COBRA or you're able to get, um, you know, one of the Affordable Care Act plans, there's still this idea of insurance churn, which is you lost this coverage, you need you, you transition to this coverage, and there are gaps. Um, I had people say, you know what, I, you know, I lost my job at the beginning of the pandemic. I didn't, you know, feel comfortable going to another doctor for a couple months, um, but actually I've been bleeding the whole time. And so, you know, we, we saw all of this, you know, exacerbated um, from the pandemic, but, you know, the insurance, the, the idea of, you know, employer sponsored health insurance um, is something that I feel like is uniquely horrible about the U.S. healthcare system. And it, the burden is really um, pushed a lot to patients to kind of take control of their own health insurance um, options. And the standard joke is that, you know, I do health insurance costs affordability as research. I have an advanced degree and it still took me, you know, two or three weeks to pick out my health insurance plan. And I'm well informed about this. So health insurance is complicated. And then certainly you add a cancer diagnosis on top of it and, it, you know, everything goes off the rails. And I think, you know, to talk a little bit about the global perspective of financial toxicity is that um, in, like, um, in Latin America, like majority of countries have free healthcare, but cancer care, the majority of the time is only available in private institutions. Like the fancy new drugs are going to be available in the private institutions. And in some countries, radiation is only available in private institutions in some areas of certain countries. So I think financial toxicity is not a unique challenge of the U.S. There are many cases all around the world in which cancer care tends to be the private institution special treatment when they're very limited auctions or very old auctions in the in the public hospitals or the hospitals run by the government. Absolutely. I think access is, uh, is differential access is a huge um, concern. But again, you don't have to go to another country to see that. You can see that. I, I mean, I live in New York City and differential access here. You know, we have, you know, several NCI designated cancer centers within, you know, a 10 mile square radius. But that doesn't mean that everyone has access to high quality cancer care. Um, and so it's a real, again, there the health the healthcare inequalities and disparities um, related to high quality care are, are enormous. Sometimes I, I get, I feel like they're insurmountable, but 
I always think, well, you know what, there are ways, there are discrete, concrete, you know, ways that I can improve access, I can improve, you know, knowledge, and I can sort of, you know, shout the message from the rooftop. And that's, that's kind of what keeps me going every day. I think it is, you know, people are becoming more aware, or at least providers are becoming more aware. But I see, I see financial toxicity as a thing that is punching my patients and different, the comes from different directions. It's not only the parking or the food is paying for gas paying. So I specialize in younger women with lung cancer in childcare is a, a reality. Cause my, if he, the kids are now at homeschool, finding a nanny is a full-time job. One of my patients say just finding a nanny takes hours and then paying for childcare. There's another thing that, you know, it is no cover anywhere. The insurance will pay for it. And it's quite expensive. Yeah. And that's, again, another thing where COVID is really, you know, we used to allow people to bring their kids to clinic, you know, <laughs> um, because it, sometimes that's the only childcare option is that they come to your appointment with you. And that's an additional burden with COVID with restrictions, not having, you know, you can't bring everyone to appointments anymore. And so it's been you know, a real additional burden to think about, okay, like it's more expensive to have childcare during the pandemic as well, because of all of the, you know, potential risks of someone coming into your home. Um, And you may not have the family support um, or, you know, the leniency for work um, to really think about how to, how do I, as a cancer provider, work your treatments around a schedule that works for you in your life? Um, because it's different for each person. And that's what we have to, like, we have to ask to understand the unique aspects of each one, right? Because everybody has a different needs, right? Everybody has spouses that they had, they need care or, you know, childcare or groceries and all of that. And understanding, Fumiko, that you are no thoracic radiation oncologist, but you are, you know, I consider you to be an expert in this subject. What are some of the unique aspects that you think lung cancer treatment are very associated with major financial toxicity for our patients? So, you know, one of the incredible changes in benefits for a patient with lung cancer has been specific, for example, targeted therapies and immunotherapies. Both of those um, treatments can be quite expensive in terms of -of out-of-pocket costs for an oral medication, you know, an EGFR inhibitor, or out-of-pocket costs for an immunotherapy like pembrolizumab. So it's, you know, they really have provided incredible benefits for patients, but they're also quite financially toxic for some for some people, not everyone, some people really do have great coverage. Um, but, you know, just again, the example that you give of someone paying out of pocket, you know, $1,500 for their medication, that is honestly not uncommon. So really thinking about, well, we have more and more to offer our patients in terms of, you know, potential, you know, precision medication or precision treatments like SBRT, which is an expensive treatment. But we need to find a way to deliver it to the patient in a way that's affordable. And that is a fine needle to thread because even, you know, the patient, you know, the the patient in front of you, um, their situation may change from the time you met them at the time of their initial consult, you know, nine months ago to, you know, your follow-up appointment um, today. 
And I think that is one thing that I want to also emphasize is just that like, this is an evolving concern for patients. You know, they may not have been financially toxic when you first met them and you say, okay, that's fine. I don't, you know, you kind of, you know, you, you slap your hands. You're like, don't need to deal with that. Um, but you know, a year, two years into treatment, some of these targeted agents people are on for, you know, years and years and years. At some point, the tide may change, you know, they may tip over. And so that's why kind of routinely and repeatedly asking people about their cost, their affordability, what sacrifices they're making, that is so essential for, for some people, you know, again, with lung cancer living longer and longer, thank God, but potentially again, getting closer and closer to this and, you know, the, the financial abyss. And I think that's another tip that we can share, not only with patients, but with the people that are listening it is that it changes over time. And that's what it needs to be assessed over time. Patients may retire, right? So their income decreases compared to their regular job of a family member or the spouse may lose their job. So financial toxicity is not like I meet you, I talk to you about it, but we need to continue to assess because life changes. And I have patients in targeted therapy for six years now. Yeah. And it's, you know, even the formulary for their insurance changing that can make the difference of thousands of dollars. So even, you know, honestly, their health insurance could be exactly the same. Their income can be the same, but the, you know, the fact that the, the formulary that was used is now is now changed um, can be a huge difference. Or like what you're saying in terms of retirement, they they go from an employee based healthcare plan to Medicare, and suddenly you know they're they're meeting you know they're not they don't have the correct supplemental coverage to cover their you know their EGFR inhibitor, and so that is a huge um, potential drain on their finances. And that's true. The whole Medicare part is very challenging. Like when one of my patients in target therapy is changing to Medicare, you know, some of the drug assistance programs from the pharmaceutical companies, they usually provide strong support when the patient is at commercial insurance. But when they switch to Medicare, like I have experienced that this drug assistance program kind of just divorced the patient. And, and I think it's important that, you know, that we advocate also for hey, like you need to support the patient even if he switches to Medicare or even if the patient has Medicare, we are utilizing your drug. <laughs> yeah, I have a love-hate relationship with uh, pharmaceutical assistance programs because they really can do amazing work for some of um, our patients. And then sometimes they're just completely, um, you know, unhelpful or abandoned. I know, again, for my husband, you know, we tried to get pharmaceutical assistance for a number of high cost medications, but he didn't qualify because he wasn't an American citizen. And so some of these, you know, he had health insurance. He was here legally, you know, he had a green card, but he was an American citizen. And so he didn't qualify for a lot of specific, you know, programs that we were looking into. And so, you know, again, it's all case by case basis, but, you know, it's really thinking about, well, how what is the comprehensive uh, plan that I can do for my patient that really thinks about all of the unique um, situations? And, and again, that, you know, I like to think that's just part of being a good doctor, which is, you know, you, you, you know, the, we make tailored 
treatment plans. It's, you know, it's not one size fits all. And it's about, you know, listening and asking and, you know, and adjusting as appropriate because not all, you know, 3A non-small lung cancer patients who are 65 are, are the same. And, and that's just really important that you mentioned the immigration status, because that's a thing that also affects many things. Can you apply for Medicaid? Can you apply for Medicare? Even if you have a green card, you need to be here for a certain amount of years to qualify for those benefits. And that's the aspect of financial toxicity that has a lot of intersectionality with the social determinants of health. We all the cancer health disparities that we see is like we keep, you know, certain populations get hit over and over again, or how the healthcare system continues to fail them. Yeah, I think we have huge gaps in 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 care delivery, and you know, financial toxicity is one of them. But it doesn't overwrite the fact that we, you know, there's still racism in medicine. There's still inequality in access. There's still food deserts in our cities, and financial toxicity is just one more layer of them. I always, you know, try to think about well, like the research that I do is it's never gonna cure cancer. I'm never gonna cure cancer, but I could potentially help someone who has a curable cancer actually achieve that cure. Um, and that's how, again, it's all incremental steps. How do we make cancer care a little bit more equitable? How do we make small improvements that get us to our larger goal? And, and I think together we can do that. Before we run out of time, I really wanna talk about your research team, because you and I know each other and we have very similar goals and uh, what we do about social justice. But your research team is very productive. Who composes the team? And I know it's multi-institutional, multidisciplinary. So can you tell us a little bit about your research team and how these came together? Absolutely. I think um, similar to you, I think that if you are vocal and passionate about a topic, you're going to pull people from many different fields, many different institutions, and they're just going to honestly come up to you and say, hey, like, I want to work with you on X thing. And so I think a lot of the team that I've been working with, they're just people that either I have approached with an idea or a concept or a project, or they have approached me thinking, I want to get involved in this great work that you're doing on, for example, affordability. I have an incredible colleague here at MSK, who's a, a gynecological surgeon, who, whose name is Emmalina Vicky. And she and I have really, um, you know, kind of charged into this idea of affordability head on. Um, and so she's my, my main go-to uh, gal in terms of, you know, collaborator, but I have people, you know, I still, I still work with my mentor at Duke, um, Dr. Yusuf Safar, who is the person who sort of guided me into this initial work on financial toxicity. I have collaborators at, for example, the Iowa State. I'm working with an incredible um, resident there who's named Bismarck, Bismarck O'Day, because he approached me and was like, hey, I know you're interested in healthcare disparities. You know, how how do I get involved in that? Or, you know, uh, he actually brought me a project recently that was like, I'm interested in burnout. I've worked with, you know, I worked with a medical student recently in Arkansas who, you know, came in through a pipeline program. And we specifically were looking at uh, racial, uh, ethnic, and gender disparities in leadership. Um, so it's really, I think, 
I think as, as you have been a perfect example of, it's being enthusiastic and being vocal and being out there um, and building together a team where, you know, you can all work together on a larger mission of, you know, how are we improving cancer care as delivered? How are we, you know, moving the needle um, to think about cancer care delivery and making it um, more equitable? And I think it's very important that we all work together, that you, you know, we get several disciplines and also that we mentor the next generation that's interested in this research. Why? Because we cannot do this alone. And um, what are your recommendations for trainees or people in general who are interested in health outcomes, particularly financial toxicity and cancer care? I think that's such a great topic, such such a good question, because I feel like this is um, kind of rising to the surface in terms of people's awareness. And so I get more and more students and medical students and even undergraduates contacted me on via email or via Twitter to say, how do I get involved in this research? I think fundamentally, you know, for trainees that are interested in doing research, the main advice I always give them is like, you know, find a mentor who will actually let you lead projects because it's really not worth, you know, working and working and checking away on something and then not, you know, not feeling like you contributed substantially to it. Like it wasn't your idea or you weren't involved in like kind of the nuts and bolts of it. So even, you know, small projects, I try to think about, well, what's a, you know, if someone has, let's say, two months of time to give me, I'm just like, okay, well, what is going to be an achievable thing that you can do that will give you, for example, a finished product, an abstract at a scientific meeting or a manuscript um, that you will take ownership over and you will drive? And I'll guide you through the process, but you're going to be the one, you know, leading, you know, this project. And that's like, I think, so helpful because then later when you're talking about your research during, let's say, residency, you know, interviews or when you're trying to get a job, you can speak authoritatively about it because you know it in and out. Um, so that's my main, you know, my main advice is always just find a mentor in a project that you're passionate about that that is yours. I think in medicine, we abuse medical students very often by just having them, you know, just giving them stuff, you know, grunt work for lack of a better term. Um, and that's not um, that's not my game. <laughs> I want I want people to to really feel the passion and drive, and you know get something out of it that that helps them. And thank you for mentoring many you know trainees and your know, faculty, particularly from the represented groups in medicine. I think we need more people like you, certainly. <laughs> and as we wrap up the podcast, I I want to summarize you know some of the tips, which is for or providers to ask about these expenses to follow over time and also to see that it's more than just a copay. There's many aspects of financial toxicity that affect our patients with lung cancer. So as we wrap up, any last few thoughts, uh, Fumiko, that you would like to share with our audience? I think that um, one thing that uh, I will try to highlight that I haven't mentioned yet is just to think about the caregivers and think and involve them. And it's harder during COVID because I think we're seeing, um, you know, patients by themselves, but as much as possible to think about, well, you know, this is a family concern. Cancer is a family concern and, you know, caregivers are so uh, vital and they're, 
basically unpaid labor and to really think about how do we support caregivers um, through the process, especially with lung cancer, because it can be, you know, very high symptom burden. Um, how do we rally resources, not just around patients, but also around caregivers? Because they're often, again, I know personally taking time off of work or sometimes even quitting their job in order to take care of their, um, their, their partners or their loved ones. And it's just one extra, you know, one extra thing to think about in terms of, okay, it's not just the person in front of me. There's the whole care team around them that I am relying on to get my patient through treatment. Um, and I should acknowledge that and try to rally resources around them too. Thank you, Dr. Fumiko Chino, for making the time to speak with me today. And this is a wrap for our episode. We have an episode of Lung Cancer Concerted every first and third Monday. Please don't forget to like this podcast, to share it with your colleagues and friends and patients, because we're talking about subjects that matter to everyone involved and the cancer care uh, team. So stay safe and be well. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concerted. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 